Hello, and welcome to Community Calls, our ongoing effort to keep the community updated with COVID-19 and other health-related issues during the pandemic. I am Dr. Panagis Galiatsatos, an assistant professor at the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine and a physician in pulmonary and critical care. Thank you for joining us. Um, I, I'm excited to be on this call today. I will update everyone, of course, with our numbers and how things are looking. And I, I always emphasize this, you know, the numbers I feel like help keep us grounded into understanding what we are dealing with and the gravity of it. But then I'm going to give an update on the vaccine. And where I'm going to go with this is one of the questions I get often asked. Was it rushed? Does that mean it's not safe? So I'm going to touch on that briefly and then, of course, turn it over to our amazing guest today. I cannot emphasize how excited I am to have these individuals here. Many of you already know that I'm one of the critical care doctors out in the uh, intensive care unit. That's where I was last week when I took the call with you all, managing our patients with COVID-19. But I also have the uh, professional honor to work in the post-COVID-19 clinic. And these individuals today, uh, our faculty, our, our uh, healthcare professionals, our clinicians, they're going to talk about the kind of support services that they do for a lot of our post-COVID-19 individuals. These individuals are, are, are going through dire consequences where they realize just surviving COVID was just chapter one of a longer book that they didn't want to be part of, unfortunately, but we're trying to give them as many resources to help them in their journey of recovery. So great, great topic for today. But with that said, I do want to also say what I've always said. You all listening, I cannot emphasize this enough. You are our front line. Your doctors and nurses were your last line of defense in order to keep someone alive. Those who can promote health and prevent disease will always hold the place of front line. And yes, doctors can do that too, but so can you all. Promoting these messages, disseminating this information, helping your community feel at ease with medical interventions or feel engaged with what they can do to help stop the pandemic. So with that said, let's go over the numbers and then we'll jump into the vaccine conversation. Real quick, in the world, we have 70,946,860 cases, deaths at 1,592,000, 732, mortality rate of 2.2%. Here in the United States, we have 16,061, uh, 16, 16,061,576 cases with deaths at 299,988, giving us a mortality rate close to 2%. I say this because we're likely to pass, again, another grave milestone of 300,000 deaths, likely in the next few days. And here in the state of Maryland, 228,471 cases with deaths at 4,901, giving us a mortality rate of 2.1%. Now, upon us, of course, is the pandemic. If you talk to a nurse or doctor who is working in the hospital, they can tell you the gravity of the situation is dire in many hospitals. Um, I think, for instance, I gave you an insight of a patient who had to be transferred to us six hours away because all the hospitals and in also in other large metropolitan cities were all full. So with that said, 
we do see an end potentially in sight, right, the vaccine that can help provide us immunity without having us go through a bad disease. So at the same time, still want to emphasize those hygienic interventions because those will protect us from getting COVID-19. I always say the best way to beat COVID is to just not get COVID. However, I do want to provide a bit of peace of mind into how we got here with the vaccine with what seems like an amazingly fast pace. But when I say fast, was it fast? Or did it just work at the pace with some serendipitous moments that provided us to get to where we're at? So let's go over how we got to this vaccine in order to provide reassurance that you need to assure that we just worked at the pace of science without cutting any corners. That's the point I want to emphasize. So first, keep in mind, we have had two other bad coronaviruses in the last 20 years. While they didn't rise to a pandemic, they did rise to a global concern. 2003, you had the prequel to SARS-CoV-2. Remember, SARS-CoV-2 is the virus that is causing COVID-19. 2003, we had SARS-CoV, right? And that ravaged Southeast Asia. So much so that vaccine developments began at that moment. They began and they began and good movements in it were coming through and then they stopped. And you may say to yourself, why did they stop, Dr. G? And I'll tell you, they stopped because the virus went away. It didn't go away because one day Mother Nature got bored. It went away because of, of strict compliance with face masks, hand hygiene, and physical distancing. Right. The same formula that we're using right now, of course. But those hygienic interventions worked. And the virus went away. And if it, with it being gone, everyone took a sigh of relief, let out a, a good deep breath, and we realized the vaccine wasn't needed. But all those lessons learned were documented you know, and put kind of in a placehold, maybe we'll revisit in the future if another coronavirus comes out. And sure enough, it did. 2013, MERS-CoV-MERS, that's the Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome coronavirus, came about, ravaged the Middle East again. Please always note, doctors and scientists, we're not too clever with names. We tend to name a, a disease of what it does or where we found it, and, and we leave it at that. So, so we have MERS-CoV. And again, we were thinking, we are going to need a vaccine to combat this. So vaccine trials began and began and began. But MERS-CoV, also, same strategy. Hygienic interventions worked. Stopping the spread of MERS-CoV, not needing a vaccine. Also, on a side note, if you're picking up a theme here and wondering why do we just do the hygienic intervention, right, it's, it's one thing we all emphasize. I will say the curveball with SARS-CoV-2 is the fact that it has asymptomatic spread. So it is always harder to be able to uh, implement those methods in people who overall feel well. So we're trying, we're trying. But all right, going back to the vaccine conversation, here we are with this pandemic. Hygienic interventions will work to stop the spread, but they are hard, of course, to implement globally to, with good compliance. So the pace of science with the vaccine is there. So what does the prior coronavirus issues mean for the SARS-CoV-2 vaccine? It means some really good news. Those vaccines, whenever a new medical intervention, whether it's a medication or even a surgical procedure, right, a new surgical procedure sometimes is tested out on animals, before it ever makes its way to human beings. Same thing with medications, same thing with vaccines. Vaccine trials for a coronavirus 
off-centering on the spike protein happened greatly with SARS-CoV and MERS-CoV, so much so that when SARS-CoV-2 emerged, those same mouse models, we flew by them very quickly and we said, we are now ready for human trials. Keep in mind, if we didn't have those two other outbreaks, we, yes, may have been years, years before a SARS-CoV-2 vaccine emerged. But because of those two prior coronavirus outbreaks, we had all the data we needed. We made one little change. It's kind of like going from an iPhone 11 to an iPhone 12. Hopefully my iPhone colleagues get that analogy or just a software update. That's it. That's all that we, we've benefited off of close to six years worth of research on coronavirus vaccines to expedite, not expedite, to go to the next level with this one. So now we're into human trials. And human trials do take time. They do. But the majority of the time has to do with economic securement to move forward with a vaccine trial. Vaccine trials take up to $100 million for each phase. And there's three phases. And for those of you who have ever raised $100 million, you could tell your other colleagues it takes time. And I'm not saying anyone on this phone has done that. I have never done that. But those who have tell me it takes years. And they're right. The economic burden to try to raise that much funding to go from phase one to phase two can take up to two to five years. So one of the reasons vaccines take so long to be made has to do with man-made barriers around the economic securement to allow, you know, staffing to be hired, volunteers to be paid, and so forth. So with the pandemic, why we didn't have that. The entire world, all the governments invested in saying, we are going to invest in you, move at the pace of science, move at the pace of science. Also, all the other vaccines being conducted at the moment, from HIV vaccines to even the Zika vaccine and Ebola vaccine, all these unique vaccine laboratories throughout the world also all stopped and said, we are going to devote our time now just to coronavirus. So suddenly you had all the economic capital we need to just move at the pace of science. And we had not just the minds, brilliant minds to work on the coronavirus vaccine, we put in brilliant minds from other vaccine developers all to work on this. So yes, science came together, regardless of language, race, creed, or ethnicity. We all worked on this together. And that's why you're seeing this vaccine come about in a manner you could say quick. I just say it just moved at the pace of science when we removed all the barriers that we would need that oftentimes prolong, prolong a, a vaccine or a medical breakthrough. So yes, phase one, phase two, phase three, for about 12 different vaccine companies, went through beautifully, recruiting as many patients as possible. I read the 57 pages of the Pfizer vaccine document given to the FDA yesterday in order to seek out approval. And reading that, I feel so confident now to say I can, I'm happy to prescribe it to myself, to my mother, my father, or to patients. They went diligently through everything to make sure not only is it effective, granted, yes, it's only three months of data for the phase three trial. It's an interim analysis. That's why they're seeking out not approval, but emergency use approval. But it all looks great and on par with what we want, and the safety conversations are there as well, documenting how the vaccine is. So no corners were cut. We moved at the pace of science within a massive investment in the world. And we took 
all the findings of history over the last 20 years of coronavirus vaccines, and we're able to expedite what we are doing now. So I'm hoping this brief conversation of how we got here with the vaccine helps to provide some comfort in saying, okay, no corners were cut, this was not politicized, this was just a pace of science with the world invested into it. So human beings are amazing. We have overcome a lot, and I think vaccine is an amazing technology that just does just that. And last thing I will leave you all with before we turn it over to our amazing guests. Last thing, if you remember nothing else, the concept of vaccine dates back to 1797, when Edward Jenner, a family physician, a doctor in, the, in, in England, noticed that women who worked with cows and got cowpox never got smallpox. The reason why I bring this up is because the word vaccine derives from the Spanish word, Latin word, for cow. So have you ever wondered how we got the name vaccine? just means cow in another language. So there's your uh, bit of trivia knowledge. There's your bit of understanding of the vaccine. And now, Kimberly, I turn it over to you, my friend. You know, we, we're linguistics here. We just talked Hebrew. I just dropped some Latin. But now we're going to move on to two, uh, two amazing individuals to talk to us about an amazing initiative that they are doing. So Kimberly, over to you. Thank you, Dr. G. And again, I'd like to introduce Dr. Joe Bienvenu, Professor of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. So welcome. Thank you for joining us this morning. Are you on the line? Yeah, um, star six to unmute your line. Hi, sorry about that. Uh, no worries. Welcome. Thank you so much for joining us today. So, um, yeah, thank you very much for having me. And uh, I listened to the update about uh, the the vaccine, which is wonderful. Um, and I, so a colleague and I, a few months ago, decided uh, she wanted to do a, a rotation in, in the medical ICU and there was insufficient um, uh, protective wear at the time. Um, and so we decided, well, why don't we have a virtual uh, clinic for patients and family members, a, a follow-up, not a clinic, um, that, that was already in place, but a support group for patients and family members. Uh, uh, of those who have been sick with this this virus, and so we started that up, and um, it was going uh, well for a while, and then more lately we have had very few people sign on, um, and so uh, I appreciate the opportunity to come and and talk about this peer support group which is um, still available. I sign on every Thursday at 3. Um, and, and if there are any uh, takers, then, then I stay on. Um, uh, it's best when there's more than one patient or family member there, but um, we will uh, accommodate whoever, whoever shows up. Thank you. And before we go into anything further, um, I, I know your background is professor in psychiatry, behavioral um, yes. sciences. So can you kind of just briefly talk about what your background is and what you do? Yes. Yes. So um, I uh, 
studied uh, general psychiatry uh, as a resident here, um, and then did a fellowship in something called psychiatric epidemiology, which just means uh, looking in the general population at the, the spread of, of psychiatric illnesses. Um, and I studied particularly anxiety disorders and also became uh, an expert in treating anxiety disorders and very closely related to them, uh, depressive conditions. Um, and then in about 2005, I started working with a critical care physician, uh, Dale Needham. Um, and he and I started reviewing the literature on psychiatric morbidity after critical illnesses. And that has been uh, eye-opening and, and very inspiring to me over the years um, because we found out how, how common such morbidity was and, um, and, and also just you know, how it affects people, how it shows up. Um, and so we've also been working on, well, what can we do about this? And peer support groups are, are one uh, aspect of this that, that others have done at other centers and, and found great benefit. I appreciate that introduction, and I think that was important to kind of give a little bit of a background. Mm -hmm. But so can we, as we start from the kind of beginning, can you explain exactly what a peer support group is? Yes. So um, peer support uh, it has a long tradition um, in, in medical communities that is it, it involves both uh, sharing what people experienced but also how people got better. Um, so people with the illness and, and family members are encouraged to participate and share information and um, as well as, you know, uh, emotional experiences um, and, and support. So that's what it's all about. And um, so you mentioned that you sign on every Thursday. So do you lead these meetings um, and um, in conjunction, I guess, with uh, Dr. McFarland? Yes, uh, and she has gotten very busy uh, in in her own work. Uh, uh, she graduated from residency a while back, um, and so I'm not sure if she will if she will be on any of our calls anymore going forward. But uh, definitely helped me get the ball rolling. So I very much appreciate her contribution. And so if someone were to, um, I assume there are Zoom or phone calls? There, yeah, Zoom meetings. So if someone, someone were to join, can you kind of walk us through what, you know, what that meeting might look like? Yes. So um, if, if a person uh, signed on, and um, I think I gave you the, the information sheet with the, the Zoom link on it, uh, which you can uh, distribute, um, then you will see me um, and any other patients and or family members that sign on. And, um, and 
we'll ask you just, you know, about your experiences um, and uh, see if there's anything that we can recommend to help if, if, if people, patients or family members are having any particular struggles. So uh, this is Dr. G. I have a yes. quick question to ask. You know, I am being part of the post-COVID-19 clinic. Yes. You know, what I'm, you know, and, I, I'm a, and to our listeners, I'm an internal medicine doctor, so that, that means yes. I take care of the, of the body, right? Uh, the right. mind, we appreciate and so forth. And I think I, I've never been so shocked when we, in our clinic, we do implement those scales to look right. for anxiety and depression. And I always, I come back and I talk to my family, family and my colleagues, I'm like, the number one referral we're, we're doing is for mental health. Yes. You know, patients who live their life and then they get struck by COVID-19 and so many consequences have resulted in this kind of direness of their mental health. And yeah. so from my standpoint, I, every patient I've seen, I think I've referred them to psychiatrists, psychology. But in your support group, what do you hear come up? Like, Is there a common theme that you find uh, in regards to how they're all – you know, or I guess the question I'm going to ask is a common theme that they yeah. find themselves a little bit surprised to know that they are suddenly grappling with mental health issues when they've never had yeah. them before. Is there a common theme that ties that all together? Yes. Well, thank you for, for raising that. And, uh, you know, our colleagues in, in Europe who have had post-ICU clinics a lot longer than, than we have had in the U.S., um, it noted that just what you said that that many people come out of a critical illness um, and 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 just find difficulty absorbing what happened. So that's a common theme. That is, what happened to me? Why do I remember that people were trying to kill me or um, or torturing me, etc.? Uh, they they tell me that. I had a bad infection, and they saved my life, but that's not how I remember it. And so another very common theme is that is that people don't have clear memories of what actually occurred while they were critically ill. Um, and as an internist, you, you see this all the time in the hospital, that is patients become delirious, their brains aren't working properly, and so they misperceive what's going on around them. So particularly if the doctors and nurses are doing procedures that are painful, they're misperceived as intentional harm when, in fact, they are life-saving procedures. Um, so that that is another very common theme that, that comes together. And um, so, you know, we've been looking at, at ways to try to give people information about what actually happened. So intensive care unit diaries are, are one thing that shows some promise in studies. That is, diaries written to patients to let them know what, uh, what they went through on a daily basis while they were critically ill so that patients can sort of put that information together with their memories and realize that maybe they had uh, a tube in their bladder, um, which may have been misperceived at the time as a sexual assault, which of course would be horrible. 
if that's what you know one as a patient perceives at the time um, and a, a bladder tube to just you know help drain the bladder um, is is much less um, negatively perceived and and so that information can help people move on and and you know just get to the business of recovering and so it, you make a great point that you know the in the intensive care unit um, people are you know, we're, we're trying to save uh, the person's life but of course it's invasive and so forth and you had a component of confusion that many of our patients experience with horrible disease states I, I, I love the notion of the diary I think being able to read it back to patients so they can have comfort of what happened I think is reassuring um, and so thank you for highlighting that. Uh, a question I want to ask, though, with this question, I'm going to ask you one last question about how to enroll in a support group. Mm. But a lot of these individuals, and so I, I told you I, I've, I've discovered so much mental health consequences in these survivors, mm-hmm. but it's not, it, it's them that bring it up, yes, as we go through the questions, but it's always family members who are mm-hmm. on the phone or on the telemedicine call and they kind of lean in and they say, did you tell them about how he's doing? Like, we're concerned about, you know, why dad doesn't seem like himself or why mom doesn't seem like herself. Mm-hmm. What would you recommend to the family members, the community members who are listening to this call? And to say, you know, you know if, some, if someone said, I'm having chest pain, I think most community members know how to respond. Like, all right, let's call the hospital. Mm-hmm. But what would you, what is the equivalent of chest pain for mental health? What would you say, keep a lookout for these survivors of covid because their mental health may be declining. How would you, any words of wisdom to provide to them to keep a sharp lookout for that? Yes. I think um, there are a few things to watch out for. Um, so with, with anxiety and, and post-traumatic stress disorder, which is accurately applied to survivors of particularly critical illnesses with, with COVID-19, um, that uh, that to watch out for difficulty sleeping at night, um, as well as as avoidance of regular life interactions of all sorts, um, or difficulty not not wanting to talk about the critical illness or their time in the hospital. That kind of avoidance is is really the most destructive thing about. The anxiety disorders because it really limits a patient's lives going forward. Um, so those are some things, uh, but also just sort of dropping out of lack of interest in in regular everyday things is also of concern. Um, and depression is is very very common. Depressed mood and loss of interest in things is also a very common problem. So, uh, no, that that was great. Thank you so much. Sorry, Kimberly. Yeah, I'm sorry. I was trying to reach for the mute button. Thank you. Like that, and I hope our listeners took that on. Um, you know, I think we we do so well to identify physical ailments, from chest pain to shortness of breath, and mental health. It, it, it I, I promise you all, and I think our listeners grasp that it is so important to recognize certain signs that someone needs help. And what you've just laid out, I, I think, is powerful and actionable for many of our listeners. So thank you. Um, and Kimberly, over to you. I know we have some community questions for 
our, our colleague. Go for it, my friend. Um, yes, I do. Thank you, Dr. G. And uh, thank you, Dr. Bienvenu, for sharing some of that information. Um, and one of the questions coming in, um, are families involved or encouraged? I know you said it could be for um, you know those that had COVID and their family mm -hmm. caregivers, but are they encouraged to participate during the support group? And if so, does the patient have to give permission for family involvement? Mm. Yes, well, great question. So um, I imagine uh, that that family caregivers will probably hear about the support group through the the, the patients. Um, so uh, so Dr. G and and colleagues who uh, see patients in in the the ICU follow up or not just ICU but but COVID follow-up clinic um, will send my chart messages with information on how to log into this um, support group, peer support group. Um, and, and then uh, patients can invite their family members to participate. Um, but we certainly would welcome family members, even if the patient is unavailable, um, because you know this is this is something that's hard on on family members themselves to have a, a very very sick loved one in the hospital even after they get out because their their lives get changed around quite substantially. Now, is this support group um, for post recovery, or if say someone's in the hospital and needs some extra encouragement, um, yeah. can they join as well? They can. So far, we haven't had any takers call from the hospital, <laughs> but but we've invited people to do that. Okay, great. Thank yeah. you. Um, and as far as participating, do they have to be patients of Johns Hopkins, or is it open to anybody? It's open to to anyone. Great. That's great to hear. Um, and you did mention my chart. So if they wanted to sign up for the support group, mm -hmm. do they have to go through that? Or I know I have a flyer, but if there's anything um, that you want to share on the phone as far as how to sign up for these? Yes. And, and you know, you don't have to do anything in advance. Just sign on on the day, on, on Thursday at the time. There's no sort of registration or anything because this is all completely free and it's meant to be facilitated uh, peer support, that is, patients and family members talking to other patients and family members. So uh, when Kate and I were doing this together, we would just sort of stand back and, and listen um, and offer questions, et cetera, if helpful. But often people just get so much out of hearing each other's experiences and, and coping strategies. Yeah, I, I think absolutely, and kind of get that better understanding that they're not alone in this. Yes. And to share experiences, I, um, I think mm -hmm. would be very helpful. Um, so I, I kind of wanted to uh, wrap up this conversation. There's a lot of questions on the vaccinations, but before I do, mm -hmm. is there any um, other closing comments you wanted to mention, and, or Dr. G, if there's anything else that you wanted to ask? before we moved on. Um. I, I'll say one last thing to our, our amazing colleague, and I can't thank you enough um, for presenting today, for being here today. I, I think the service you have is fantastic. And 
sometimes I feel like at Hopkins or in other hospitals, a fantastic service um, doesn't get the recognition it needs unless we can put that massive spotlight on it. And so um, I am happy to broadcast the biggest spotlight on this because it, it is helpful for the patients, their families, and the community. So by being on this community call, I encourage our listeners, let your family members know about it. Um, we'll keep promoting it on our end. And um, you have officially, you've acquired fans of this. So we can uh, utilize this amazing resource. So I cannot thank you enough. Um, we may actually invite you back in the near future in order to even talk about a little bit more outcomes that you're seeing or um, even some success cases, hopefully, uh, out of the support group. Um, sure. that, those are my last closing words, and I'll turn it over to you for any last closing words as well. Oh, yes. Well, just thank you very much for having me and be delighted to come back anytime. Perfect, Thanks. perfect. So, Kimberly, over to you for our community questions. Thank you. And thank you again, Dr. Um, I keep on looking at my pronunciation because I don't want to get it wrong. Um, so, I'll, I'll, um, Dr. Bienvenu, is that, am yeah. I saying it right? Okay, yes. perfect. So thank you again so much um, for joining us today. I really appreciate the information that you shared, um, and, I'm and I'm hopeful that this is a, a great resource that people would take advantage of. I do have the flyer, and I will definitely send that out. Thank you. Um, and you're more, I know you're a busy man, but you are more than welcome to stay on the call for other questions, but if you need to leave, um, just thank you again for joining us today. No worries. So, Dr. G, we have gotten a number of questions that come in um, actually over the last couple of days. Many of them, um, as to no surprise, are about the vaccinations. So the first question is, um, how would you advise a 90-year-old using Advair daily for allergy-induced asthma about getting the vaccine? Uh, so from my standpoint, you know, one of the things that I took great appreciation out of the vaccine data that I reviewed. So, and I see this because every doctor, every clinician, I promise you to be a good clinician, every intervention that we offer, brand new medication that we offer, we have read the data, right? That's what allows us to follow that oath of do no harm. We know the risks and benefits, and we can weigh that out for every patient in order to say, I think you'll get this maximum benefit without any risk. What I really enjoyed about reading the data from uh, Pfizer for right now is the full recognition that in the phase three, in phase two and phase three trials, so phase one, you usually are recruiting healthy people, just no pre-existing conditions because you're really assuring that the vaccine is safe and that there's a dire adverse event, a healthy individual has much more physiological reserve to be okay with that adverse event. Phase two and phase three, you do begin to take on more of the population that is similar, that is happening in real time, that is disproportionately being ravaged by disease. And so in phase two and phase three trials, we were seeing more individuals that look like the ones we are hearing about being impacted, our elderly population, those with pre-existing conditions. And what is amazing to re uh, report back, the, the vaccine was safe. The adverse event there, and again, it is an intervention, so you're going to get some percentage of an adverse event, but the adverse event was no different than the placebo group, right? So, you know, the group that just got a needle in the arm with no medications, nothing in it, just kind of uh, a little bit of salt water, 
they had as much adverse events as those who were older. And so it was under about 1%. And the number one adverse event for everyone was a sore arm, right, from the needle being jabbed in. So I would recommend, you know, to anyone in that specific age group or vulnerable populations with pre-existing conditions to strongly consider the vaccine at this moment. It is one way of achieving immunity where if you get the virus, no big, you have no symptoms, or maybe you develop like a minor cough or runny nose, but nothing life-threatening. So I would strongly recommend it, and uh, that's how I would talk to my loved one about it. Over to you, Kimberly. Thank you. So the next question, um, somewhat related, should a person with allergies to penicillin and sulfa drugs be concerned with the new Pfizer vaccine? So the... Um, challenge that we have sometimes when a general comment is made is how does that general comment apply to me individually? So right off the bat, let me, let me hopefully put some con- uh, E uh, to the concerns here. So allergies is a very complex word to grasp really four key different types of allergies. The type 1 is probably the one that gets a lot of notoriety because it's the one with anaphylaxis, right? It's like if I get it, I swell up and so forth, I need an EpiPen. The two individuals who took the vaccine and suffered such an allergy, they carry EpiPen. So it was very well documented that they self-administered. So are there individuals in the world who are very prone to adverse allergic events? Those are the patients that we definitely keep a close eye on, but those are the patients who know this. They carry EpiPen. So if you are an individual such as that, I would talk to your clinician, meaning if you have an EpiPen in your house, definitely talk to your physician about concerns. But then there is a ton of other allergies that are not life-threatening, and, and not to say that they're not annoying, right? They're, they're just ones that we recognize and they're present. So for instance, I always bring up Poison ivy. Poison ivy is technically called a type 4 hypersensitivity reaction. Anaphylaxis is a type 1. Type 4 means you come across something and then days later you get a little bit of a rash. I understand poison ivy can be annoying for others, my aunt specifically, but long story short, those who do have allergies can still get the medication. Just discuss with your doctor what your allergy means and so forth. Having a penicillin allergy, for instance, not exclude you. It is a different type of reaction. I say this because the immune system, keep in mind, is very complex. And sometimes we oversimplify it with by saying the concept of allergy. The same thing, by the way, with an infection. Right? When we say infection, you have different levels of what that means of how something reacts and so forth. So long story short to my listeners, to our listeners, if you have allergies, we can safely still get this vaccine. Those who I circle and I'm a little concerned, they know who they are. They're the ones who carry around with them that life-saving antidote because they live in a world where they are so prone to lethal consequences of an allergy at all times. Those are the individuals we're most concerned about. So back to you, Kimberly. Thank you, Dr. G. Um, Next is an excellent question. when the two doses of the vaccine are required, what happens if only one dose is taken? Is your immunity compromised? Right, so we, we don't know. So I say this because uh, when we saw the vaccine trials for these individuals, they got the 
it was a, almost 100% compliance of getting the booster shot. And um, meaning, so in between three weeks, all those volunteers got the second dose. So we really don't know what it means if you just got one of the vaccine, do you walk away being okay? We do know you do mount an immune response. It was as high as about 89% uh, in the individuals after the first booster shot because we evaluated it. After the uh, second, went up to over 95% for many. We just don't know. With the second one, we feel comfortable in knowing that you're going to have it for some time, meaning for three-plus months. If you just have one dose, we don't know how long that one dose will last. That's why we usually always infer a booster, not just to increase the quality of the antibodies, but the quantity of the duration. So right now, the best way it was studied was a booster. We do boosters for other vaccines. For instance, hepatitis B is my favorite one to emphasize. That one, you get three shots a few months apart. So right now, I don't know what one would do overall. We do know you do get an immune response, but I don't know if it's going to be one that's going to be greatly protective. So what I would say is if you're looking to get the Pfizer vaccine, because it's the first one out now, make plans to get the first and second three weeks apart. So um, the next question um, likely um, may not know the answer to, but uh, it's kind of a good segue when you mentioned about the hepatitis shot. So um, if it, one person only gets the booster shot, and if we compare that to the hepatitis, are people likely to be contacted to say, hey, you're due for your next shot? Um, you know, or, or do you think there will be some yeah. kind of communication system? I think we are going to rev up the process of adequate vaccination beyond what we've seen before, right? Keep in mind, you know, hepatitis B is horrible. It's a bad disease, but it's not a pandemic where we are relying on our neighbors to get it in order for us to be safe. This is different. We are relying on our neighbors to get it. We're relying on ourselves to get it, relying on others to get it. So I would say if you do go out to get this vaccine, you can be assured you are going to be contacted aggressively to follow up with it. So if you're like me, who I'll just put it in my Google calendar, yeah, that won't be it. You'll get phone calls in plenty. And I say this because we are seeing that kind of um, follow-through begin to take place at Hopkins for the public when it comes out, but also for us uh, healthcare workers um, that they're making plans to begin getting it soon. Thank you, Dr. G. Um, the next, again, I'm not sure um, if we have the answer for this, but when they had the preliminary approval of the vaccines yesterday, did they share what the reasons were for the four that voted no, or if there's anything that can be shared about the concerns with the vaccine? So I, I don't know. I, I didn't understand for those who voted no, I didn't know what their concerns were. So I apologize. I, I don't have an answer for that. Um, it, 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 yeah, so I apologize. I, I don't know um, for that. And, you know, most people will say, well, it was the interim data. You know, it's, it was for a vaccine approval. We usually want six months of phase three data. This is coming at three months of phase three data. And again, a lot of that has to do with because we're seeking emergency approval, not uh, standard approval. So emergency approval with interim data, you can request it. So I don't know. 
I, I don't know what the vote for no was. Um, so that, if it's public, I'll have to look into it. But um, off the top of my head, I don't know. And for those of you saying, well, that, if they waited for six months, that would be reasonable. The only thing I would say to that is, keep in mind, we do have phase one and phase two level data that dates back to eight months. So there is data that exists if the one concern was saying yes to an interim data analysis. There is data you could extrapolate from phase one and phase two. But Kimberly, that's a great question by the community. I, I don't know, um, from my standpoint, what was the uh, reason behind the vote for no's. And, you know, kind of as a follow-up to that, you know, as we work with uh, the health department, as all hospitals in, in Maryland will, you know, we want to certainly be transparent and share the information that we do know um, to make our communities feel safe and, and that this vaccine is safe and effective. So um, as more information comes to light, we will certainly share it with you um, because we definitely want to be open and transparent with you. Um, and the last question actually has to do more if you could kind of clarify um, potential misunderstanding about the strains of COVID that were identified in the Baltimore Ravens camp. Can you care, uh, clarify um, as they had heard that there were four different strains? Is this Yeah, uh, no, happy to. No, I love this question. I love this question because it's, it's so when we contact trace, um, it can be done kind of this, you know, talking one another. But sometimes depending on an organization of, oh, my gosh, did we have an outbreak here or was it brought in by the community, we may escalate the contact tracing to laboratory contact tracing. What does that mean? So contact tracing, for the most part, for the general population, it would be who did you go with, who did you hang out with, let's tell them to get tested, and that's that's that. Contact tracing escalated to a laboratory level, for instance, has been done in certain factories uh, in the Midwest where they said to themselves, oh, is our factory super spreader and do we have to shut down? So what ended up happening in that factory, I think it was out of Wisconsin, two individuals came to work, both of them tested positive. And so when the headlines, I would say, factory, two workers positive, the factory is a super spreader event. But when they tested the workers through contact laboratory testing and sent the strains, they realized those were different strains, meaning those workers didn't catch it there. They likely caught it from the community and brought it there. What does different strain mean? So a different strain is no different than your children. What do I mean by that? So for the mothers and fathers out there, you realize your child is human, right? No one has an alien baby, hopefully. Your child is human, but your child is different from you, right? And that's the same thing what we mean by those different strains of the virus in order to contact trace it back. Meaning, at the Raven, it wasn't one virus that went around spreading. People likely brought in four different strains from the community into the uh, uh, training centers. So what that means is essentially looking for the fingerprint of the virus, just like you would use a fingerprint for a child to differentiate one child from another. All children are human, same species, but there's a little bit of generic, genetic variability to distinguish them. Same thing happens with all these viruses. Every time they leave a human being, they take a little bit of a human being with them, and it begins to help distinguish them from other SARS-CoV-2s. So same virus, but a little genetic difference, just like a child from one sibling to another would be different. That's it. So same species, just a little bit of genetic variability, 
that kind of helps distinguish it. So hopefully that helps people understand what that means. Four different strains, so it just meant likely that people brought in four different types of SARS-CoV-2 from the community. Same virus, just different children of it. So if you could repeat that last part. So you had said same virus, because so one of the questions was, are there four different viruses? And I think that was kind of the fear. So you're talking about one virus, just different strains. Yep. So it's one virus, different children. So you all have children. So some of you may have children or not, but no one calls your child a strain, right? Um, it's just a child. It's, it's, you know, it's your offspring. Your genetic material is in that. That's what we mean here. It's just different children of SARS-CoV-2 that have come out. It's not a different virus, the same virus, just certain children of it. Because, again, every time it leaves a human, it takes a little bit of it with it. Right? So that's a little bit different. doesn't mean it's a different species. No different than a child is. Uh, a child is still human, right? It's still human, just a little bit different from its mother and father. That's what we mean. Same SARS-CoV-2, just four different children of it that got into the camp. So, again, sticking with that analogy, with those four different children, would they all, the vaccine would all be able to effectively... Um, Cover them all. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So, again, it's, it's still SARS-CoV-2 hasn't changed, there's no mutation, those little recognizing different children of it, it, it's just that. It's a different child, but same species, same species. So yeah, vaccine will cover it, it all. Yeah. Great question, by the way. That is a really good question because I think to our listeners, it's that kind of misconception that I think causes an uh, un unfortunate over panic. But it's, if you hear the word strain, Think of it no different as, as a child. I'm like, oh, that's just another child of SARS-CoV-2. The same virus, just a different child. That's it. I, I appreciate that clarification, and, and hopefully um, that did clarify some of the uh, mis uh, misunderstanding or miscommunication. I'm not sure what the word is there. But um, thank you, Dr. G. I um, appreciate that. Is there any closing comments you wanted to say before we move on to our prayer? So I'll, I'll just finish it with this. Um, you know, Kimberly and I, we've been doing these calls since March 16th. And, you know, um, I know over the last few weeks, these calls, you know, we, we try to make them efficient. If we take the entire hour, great. If we don't, we want to get that information and, and have you all enjoy your weekend. But with the vaccine coming out, with the support group, today, you know, knowing that we took the entire hour, I'm hoping our listeners appreciate um, all the information they got and wasn't too overwhelming. But we're in this together. Right. We're, we're slowly transitioning into the next chapter, which is the vaccine. And we are going to be here every step of the way. Every new vaccine that gets approved, we'll happily tackle that and so forth. So that's it. To our listeners, we will never quit you. We will be here. Honestly, Kimberly and I are looking, you know, even after the pandemic, we'll just have a different Kimberly and Dr. G show where we'll tackle different health topics. So we'll always be here for you all. You mean a lot to us. That's it, Kimberly. I'll turn it over to you. Thank you, Dr. G, as always. And before I turn this all to Reverend Johnson, I want to remind everyone about our next call, scheduled for Friday, December 18th at 11 a.m. Reverend Paula Teague, our Senior Director of Spiritual Care and Chaplaincy, will discuss advanced care planning and the importance of identifying a multiple healthcare agents, um, particularly during a pandemic. 
And now for those who would like to stay on the call, Reverend Johnson will offer closing thoughts and a prayer. Thank you, Kimberly, and thank you, Dr. G, and thank you, Dr. Bienvenue, for just such excellent information. Um, it's going to be very useful for all of our community. I look forward to sharing uh, much of this information with my own congregation. And so for those of you who have remained on the line, we thank you as well. And we share now this with you. The month of December is a time of significant religious holy days or cultural holidays for many. For instance, Christians will celebrate Christmas, reflecting on the birth of Christ. And many African Americans will celebrate Kwanzaa or First Fruits, teaching the seven principles or values of African culture. One particular celebration reminds us of the importance and significance of religious freedom and hope. Thursday, or last night, marked at the beginning of the Jewish festival of Hanukkah, the festival of lights. The Hebrew word Hanukkah means dedication, and is thus named because it celebrates the rededication of their holy temple. In the second century BC, the Holy Land was ruled by the Seleucids, or Syrian Greeks. They attempted to force the people of Israel to accept Greek culture and to abandon all Jewish observances. Against all odds, a small band of faithful, poorly armed Jews, led by Judah the Maccabee, defeated one of the mightiest armies on earth. When they sought to light the temple's menorah, they found only enough oil to burn one day. Miraculously, they lit the menorah, and the small supply of oil lasted for eight days. Thus, they light the first night one candle, the next night two, etc., not necessarily using oil any longer. Besides the menorah, families played the dreidel game. It's a spinning top that was used to fool the Syrian Greek soldiers who would raid the schools to make sure that the Torah was not being taught. When lookouts would see these soldiers approaching, the children would quickly pull out the dreidels and play. As my colleague Rabbi Shur says, the festival of lights in truth represent religious freedom. During this time of year, we truly pray for those blessings, as do all free people. He adds, may this holiday season mark for all of us who have lately witnessed so much darkness, the appreciation of what the beautiful lights can bring to our lives. May the darkness be wiped away by the gift of light. And so we pray, holy God, we thank you that in this time of darkness and dread, you offer us a source of great light and sustained hope. We thank you for our freedom to worship you and pray to you as we understand you, and that through our encounters with your divine spirit, even in this year, 2020, so full of grief, despair, confusion, and angst, we have found renewed strength and a wellspring of hope. Help us, we pray, as we stand upon the doorsteps of a new year, to use our freedom of faith and our faith in you to walk therein in wisdom, knowledge, and truth. Help us to recall the lessons of love for neighbor, respect for others, thirst for knowledge, and quest for truth to be our beacon lights as we navigate the uncharted territory of a prayerfully post-pandemic year. Grant, Lord God, happy holidays, blessed holy days, good health, and true prosperity to all. In your name, that is the gift that keeps on giving, we pray. Amen.
Thank you, Reverend Johnson. And thank you again, everyone, for listening today. Happy Hanukkah to those who celebrate. Stay safe, be well, and we look forward to uh, touching base with you again. Thank you. This podcast is made possible by the Johns Hopkins Bayview Healthy Community Partnership, its Department of Spiritual Care and Chaplaincy, Johns Hopkins School of Medicine's Medicine for the Greater Good, and the Johns Hopkins Institute for Clinical and Translational Research.